We are digging into the archives for a couple of special bonus episodes for the podcast. This week, I'm excited to share with you a talk I gave to a business management class at The Ohio State University. As I've shared before, I felt pressure when I was growing up to to choose between doing the kinds of things I loved, art, creativity, expression, and doing something with my life that would seem as, quote, successful. My oldest son just went off to college this year, which is a huge life step itself, but even more so in the midst of a pandemic. As many people around the world are going through the same thing, it is important for us as parents to do the work to encourage our kids to combine their passions for work and life and spend time doing that every day. If nothing else, my hope in sharing my story is to show that while it is possible, it still takes a lot of work and dedication for us to build from our highest and best self. I hope you enjoy and would encourage you all to share your journeys with me on social media at Brett Kaufman on Instagram and Facebook. Boy, eight o'clock class on a rainy day, I would not have been smiling like I see many of you doing, but um, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for being here. Uh, I was not that passionate about academics and I wasn't that passionate about real estate. And in both cases, they're still not the things that I'm most passionate about. But what I am really passionate about is the journey of life. And in many ways, that's really um, an important part of what you're doing here today. (laughs) For me, that's what college was mostly about, was the discovering of myself and the discovering of life. So I'm going to start by talking to you a little bit about my life and my journey, get into real estate, and I'll take you through kind of my entire uh, real estate portfolio through that lens, seeing the ways that my life (laughs) has really informed my real estate. And that's how I think your careers and your work should go, that your life experience really should inform what you do with your work. And I was lucky enough to be able to figure out how to integrate my work, and my life. So we'll get to that in a bit. I was born in uh, Miami, Florida, and uh, to two 26-year-old parents that had no idea what they were doing. I was the second of uh, two kids. We quickly moved to Akron, Ohio, and started our lives there. My father was generationally uh, an addict and abusive and really had a lot of kind of beliefs around how things were supposed to go for his first son. I was supposed to look the part, shake a hand, look people in the eye, be successful, be a Kaufman, be a man, be a lot of things that um, are kind of unrealistic for a six-year-old, you know, and certainly uh, for an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old. But that's how I grew up. I grew up with the kind of messaging of an alcoholic, addict, gambler, sex addict, et cetera, et cetera, uh, household. And I took that on. I uh, decided that I would be those things because that's what I was told I should be doing at a very young age. But along the way, my parents got divorced. We moved to Columbus and I started to rebel a little bit because those things naturally didn't feel good to me. I wasn't that interested in being successful and at that age. And so I started to discover and find different ways to act out. And 
And what that led to was really the opportunity to meet different people and to have different experiences. So that led me to the art room where I learned what it looked like to be a creative. That led me to kind of the misfits and the weird ones that I saw myself in, in part. That led me to kind of a very long, well-rounded opportunity to grow up and discover who I really was. I went to the University of Arizona and uh, started to study architecture. I felt like there was something that was inside of me that, that was kind of drawn to architecture. And the same for psychology. I had a psych class that really moved me, that really caught my attention, that really seemed to be of, of real interest and that something that maybe I could really connect to. But pretty fast, that childhood programming came back in and the success, the looking good, the business uh, money programming that I had gotten at that very young age led me um, out of those, those what potentially could have been passions and into something that looked a lot more uh, like I could tell my parents what I was doing, which was real estate. There wasn't a real estate program when I was in college. It was called regional development. It's probably more like a city planning degree. And so that's what I studied. That's what I graduated in. And um, yet when I graduated, I knew that I wanted to be in real estate development. That felt like it was something that would give me the opportunity to tap into some of that creative energy that I had really felt connected to. But I had a girlfriend, pretty serious girlfriend at the time. She was four years older than me. And her boyfriend had worked at a bank, uh, her, her ex-boyfriend, and her parents had felt like he was the, the one for her. So um, I decided I was going to go work at a bank. And so um, I spent five years working in banking, um, mostly to impress her and her parents, uh, which, which worked in a lot of ways. And, and the truth is, is that like this all works. So I want you to know that my belief is that everything happened exactly how it was so, supposed to be. I have no regrets. I have nothing but gratitude. And I'm so fortunate and so, um, so uh, happy that even all of that abuse and everything else that appeared to be wrong happened exactly the way it did. And we can come back to that. And the reason that the banking thing worked is because I've um, now been married to that girlfriend for 20 years. We met 24 years ago and you know, started our lives together. And so uh, for that reason, it worked. But I hated banking. I absolutely hated banking. I realized that I was totally out of place. It was not at all something that I was passionate about. And again, that was perfect because that taught me what I did not want to do. And sometimes that's probably the most important thing that you can learn is exactly what it is that you don't want to do. And sometimes it has to be really, really painfully obvious, which was banking for me. But along the way, while I was working in uh, banking, I discovered uh, a real estate developer. I started a bank, a real estate developer. I was doing mezzanine financing. Are any of you in the finance world? So I started doing uh, mezzanine financing for real estate developers, which essentially was like a high interest rate uh, loan 
to uh, a developer to kind of help fill out their capital stack. It's in between the debt and the equity. And there was a guy in Texas, and I started to spend some time with him and start to walk the, the sites with him and really go through his projects and started to really realize that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to really get into real estate and do it from the development side. So I left the banking world and I went to work for a production home builder who had a multifamily um, private part of their business, family private part of their business that were old assets they'd owned a long time. And I went there to learn what it was like to be on the operations side, on the management side, and um, on the property management side. And I worked my way through that organization and they started doing development and I started to do development with them. And we were doing very production, uninspiring work. It was a multi-generational business. They had kind of the same systems. Many of the people had been there for 20, 30 years. Again, it was not something that I was really energized by, but I felt like I was kind of on the right path. I spent 11 years at that company and I was uh, working in various departments and kind of learning the business as a whole. But again, overall, not that energized about what I was doing every day. And I now had kids of my own and I was probably starting to adapt some of the same programming unconsciously that my father had um, when, when I was a kid. And not to the same degree, not abusive, but starting to really feel frustrated and unhappy with my work and seeing these little kids. And it's hard when they're young, not sleeping, just really kind of not real happy with how things were going. And I got a little bit of a, I don't know, maybe um, some would call it luck. I believe it was kind of the universe's way of nudging me in the right direction. But I lived in German Village at the time, and I started to drive around German Village just in my spare time looking at properties. And I got lucky and I found a duplex that I decided this was going to be the thing that I was going to do to start trying to tap into something that felt like more me. So um, that's a little fast forward, but this is that duplex. It's actually two buildings on third over by Stoffs, if you're familiar with that area. And there were two units in each building. So it was a total of four units. And I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I had no idea uh, really what I was doing at all. I put together a one-page pro forma that had some really basic line items. And I was fortunate enough to get a bank, a friend of mine who worked at a bank, to loan me a million dollars. And that really was the start of my career. My thesis was being a kind of design magazine junkie sitting, you know, in, in, and this is probably before Pinterest and a lot of the ways that we look at stuff today, but flipping through magazines over and over again, mostly kind of just like fantasizing about the homes that I would someday like to live in and starting to really kind of get a good appreciation for design, the art, the architecture, the piece that I really liked, my thesis was that you could take a lot of those same finishes and the experience of living in these really sexy high-end homes and put them into something affordable in an urban setting. 
At that time, you mostly had to spend a million dollars and live out in the suburbs to have stainless steel appliances and you know granite countertops. That's probably in all of the student housing dorms today. And, and believe it or not, you really had to be in a very high-end home to have those things. And this is in you know, kind of the late 90s, early 2000s. So <clears throat> I started buying duplexes and doing this kind of stuff. Now, believe it or not, I know that looks, to me, it looks terrible now. Um, but like that was really, really innovative at the time. Um, and this was my form of the art room. This was me tapping into those times where the cre- creative side of me was really able to be found. And to do a pendant like light, to do the stainless steel, to do the new cabinets, the hardwood floors... You know, th- these are things that were not being done. And they started to sell and they started to go really well. And I started to make some money. And I was doing all of this on nights and weekends. I would wake up at five in the morning and go down and check on the project. And then I would go to work. And then I would go back at 6.30 at night. And then I would pay bills and flip through magazines and stay up till midnight and do both. I was still working the job and doing this at the same time until I had done enough of this that I was really convinced that there was a a way to do this at scale. And I did that at scale with my old company for a while. I would bring back the things that we were learning and I would bring them into our projects. We took our entire portfolio of product that was built in probably the 60s and 70s and renovated it and looked like this. And we were doing really well as a company. And we had a project where we, it was a very large project where we renovated the entire project. I got to run the entire thing. Um, My boss really let me do what I believed we should do. And it went really, really well. And I'll never forget the, the family that owned this project made about $10 million on the project. And my boss um, brought me into his office and sat me down and said, you did really good. I'm really proud of you. Thank you. I want to give you $20,000. And I thought to myself, um, wow, uh, that's a lot of money. And how am I ever going to make $10 million? Not here, not at $20,000 a pop. Um, I got to go do my own thing. And so it was that and many other things that kind of culminated at the same time that got me to realize that I had to stop, not just for the money, I had to stop working environments that I wasn't passionate about. I had to start to bring the things that I knew were inside of me, the creativity and the other things that I was really passionate about into my work. It was time for me to figure out how to bundle all of that and go do my own thing once and for all. So I'm going to just, yeah. So this is what was done first to found Kaufman Development. These words were written before I had a project, before I knew exactly what I was going to do. But I knew that I needed to combine my passion for work in life and go do that with my day every day. And the things that I were passionate, the things that I was passionate about and still am, wellness, 
philanthropy, sustainability, innovation, and design. These were things that I was doing on weekends or thought I would do later in life. To volunteer was not something that you would do during the day. To work out would be something that you would do at night or on the weekends. But I thought there was a way for us to build an organization, a company, where we could do all of that during the day and not have to have these separate works, the separate work and um, life, uh, have those things be separate. And this is the portfolio for the most part. I think we've got most of it up there that we've created. This was the first project that we built uh, in New Albany called the Gramercy off of Central College Road. This is my very first deal, much like that million dollar bank loan that I got on my first duplex. I was somehow lucky enough to get somebody to finance this with really no balance sheet. And you know, my belief was really that it was kind of meant to be, um, that there was something conspiring on my behalf because I had probably a dozen banks tell me no way, but I had one that said yes. And that one was the best bank loan I will probably ever get in my career. I've never since had a bank loan anywhere near as good. It was a 96% non-recourse, 96% loan to cost non-recourse loan that allowed me to get started. It was 322 units, so it was a big project. And fundamentally, it looked exactly like the things that I had been building in my old company, but I turned it on its side and I brought all the passions in. So we created new architecture that was contemporary, that hadn't really been done before in that area, big amenities, big programs, well-branded, get rid of the playground, put in the community garden, spend money on events and programs and volunteer opportunities instead of apartment guide books and listings, find new ways to create community and really build something that people could get attached to, but fundamentally very strong tried and true real estate. And it worked. So then I decided to come downtown. Um, You might know this project. It's right off of um, 315 by the White Castle building and um, build my first urban infill project. Again, this was a site that people thought, you know, I don't know that I, nobody really understood the site. Nobody really believed in the project. Most of the banks told me no. But what I saw was fundamentally really strong real estate. Great drive-by traffic. It's a half a mile outside the arena district. It's a half a mile outside of Grandview. You can see Ohio State right on the highway. If I build something that doesn't exist and really catches people's attention, I think they'll want to live there. And that's exactly what happened. This was the first kind of downtown swimming pool, you know, kind of vibey environment and, you know, contemporary architecture project that was built downtown in this, in this cycle. And it also was really well received. Then going out to uh, the suburbs to, with the belief that, that people in the suburbs, people in this case near Polaris, also wanted an urban environment, that they wanted contemporary architecture, they wanted the amenities, they wanted that experience, the events, the programs, but they didn't want to live downtown and they didn't want to drive downtown. And so we built a 270-unit elevator product. This is you know uncommon in the suburbs at that point. That was usually, usually what you'd see in the suburbs was 
stick frame, two-story or three-story walk-up. Nobody was building anything with elevators that felt like a real um, mid-rise building in the suburbs. So we took a bit of a risk and built this um, right in a retail area. Actually bought retail out parcels. Most people couldn't understand how you could pay that much for apartment ground, but we knew that we could actually uh, get the density on a tighter site and have access to restaurants and all the retail that was around it. So then we've kind of then we decided to expand that experience, both kind of the all of those projects really into this building, 250 High, which is um, near the Columbus Commons. If you guys have been over there in the central business district of downtown. And this was really a unique project for us because we built office into it, retail and office. So now we're actually starting to venture into mixed use. My belief now is I believe that not only do people want this experience where they live, but they want it where they work. That if you go to work every day, you also want these amenities. You also want to be able to go work out in the gym. You also want to be able to go to a rooftop and listen to a speaker or change clothes at lunchtime and go with a group of people to volunteer. And so if we're doing all of that where you live, why would you have to wait till you get home to do that? Why don't you do that at work? And if you create really uh, high design space, wide floor plans, you know, kind of more of a contemporary space, maybe businesses would want to locate in these kind of projects. So now we've combined the philosophy of really integrating your work and life um, truly by building a building where you can live and work in it. So that was the belief for 250 High. That worked really well. So we jumped across the street, across the park, and built um, 80 on the Commons. Pretty much the same project, different architecture, um, but 100 and I want to say 60,000 square feet maybe 180,000 square feet of office and 120 apartments above. These are steel frame buildings. The projects before were stick frame. In this case, we used an existing parking garage. So this was, a, in both those last two buildings, a redevelopment of what used to be our city center mall site. If, if anybody is familiar with that, you guys are probably too young to remember that. But um, there used to be a mall, enclosed mall downtown <clears throat> that failed. And the city scraped it, built the park, and there was parking garages that were left. So we were able to connect into those parking garages to make these projects work. Slide there. But do you, this is the Levesque Tower. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Levesque Tower. It's a 42-story building. And this was the first real renovation project that we did. It's kind of fun for me because now I'm going back to those times where I'm in the German village duplexes, but now we're doing it from <coughs> floors. 20 to 42, 70 apartments at the top of the Levesque Tower. There's eight condos at the very top. There's a hotel, which we did not develop, but we were um, a part of the development group underneath us, and then some office and first floor retail. <laughs> this is a project that we've got on the drawing boards in the short north that we are kind of just coming back to building um, right behind North Star, um, also mixed use. We're building a big project at Easton now, um, 300 some units right in their new phase. And we ventured out of town and we're building apartments and condos um, for the Green Bay Packers next to Lambeau Field. This is a fun project. 
all of this is still very much at the core of what we do. But, um, well, and this is kind of what that looks like. So a lot of activities, a lot of partnerships, a lot of collaborations, a lot of events. The philanthropy is still very much at the core of what we do. I think these numbers are a little dated. It's probably more than that, but it's turned out to actually have an impact in the community, both in hours and dollars. A lot of great organizations that we um, are really proud to have been a part of. Which leads me to gravity. How many are you familiar with the Gravity Project? A couple of hands. So this is um, this is our kind of culmination of all of that. This is our next really big step in what it means to make an impact uh, in people's lives, which is the thing that I'm actually really passionate about. That's the thing that I'm probably most passionate about. Real estate is a pretty long, risky capital-intensive, labor-intensive way to make an impact in people's lives. And for now, and I'm doing other things too, but for now, um, that's the way we're going about making an impact. And we believe so much in the impact that we've really kind of built this entire brand around how we do that. So um, at the core, fundamentally, Gravity, it's on Broad Street in Franklinton. It's 234 apartments five stories of stick frame construction on top of a podium, first floor retail, 30,000 square feet of retail, and a standalone 50,000 square feet steel frame office building. But none of that's really that important. What gravity is really about is we've changed the philosophy now to these three words, which is well-being, expression, and impact. And we're really here to try to nurture an enlightened future filled with love, compassion, peace, creativity, and inspiration. We exist to create connected communities that are catalysts for the expansion of human consciousness. We're now starting to use some big words. We're talking about conscious communities. We're really starting to lean into you know, what might feel weird, what might feel awkward, but what I see happening in other parts of the country and I believe in is that we're really here to awaken people to get them to connect into their passions, just like I had the opportunity to do for myself, although it was a very long and difficult route. How do we make that easier for people? How do we nudge them? How do we give them the opportunity to come to an event, to meet somebody, to get a spark, to feel safe, to feel comfortable, to feel supported, to go live into their passions? And we're jumping across the street to do a second phase. So the first phase is now complete. Retailers are opening, coffee shops open, breweries opening, a lot of events. We're doing over 20 events a month, things ranging from sound healing and acupuncture to tech events and everything in between. We'll build a 12-story, 256-unit tower across the street. Um, Here's some of the kind of early renderings. It's very um, kind of spiritually grounded and focused on a particular kind of design. A lot of art, a lot of immersive art, a lot of murals from around the world. We'll do uh, probably 70,000 square feet of murals within this project alone. There's 45,000 square feet of art on the first phase. 160,000 square foot standalone office building. And our first co-live product. So this is student housing for adults, 
millennials, um, creatives, artists. Uh, it's becoming a real trend across the country. It gives people a real affordable option and a communal option. So we're excited about this. A um, few townhouses we might offer for sale and some existing buildings that we're going to repurpose for some retail. And so I tell you all of that, including kind of the early personal stuff, because I see all of that, as I said from the beginning, informing everything that I've done in my work. That could just look like a lot of real estate. It could look like a lot of projects. But really what that is, is my life. That's all of the experience that I've had personally and professionally bundled into how I live out my life and work. So I'll pause there and um, answer questions. Yeah. Have any of your projects not gone according to how you want them to? And anything you took away from that that was important? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I'm I'm glad you asked because you know I'm here telling you you know that worked, that worked, that worked, and and the truth is is that I started building my own projects, the duplexes, in the before the Great Recession, and they all went really well with the exception of the last one, which is four units on Neal Avenue, which I had kind of taken my biggest swing on and was going to deliver my highest priced units and the market crash and I could not sell them. Now, I didn't have, I wasn't way overextended. So I was able to hang on. And today, and I rented the units and today they turned out to be these really great rentals. It's been, I don't know, maybe 13 years and I've been paying down the mortgage and I'm really happy I own these things. But for a while, it was really painful. And then I went through the Great Recession with my old company. And so nothing worked. I was lucky that I didn't have my own money in those deals. I didn't have any money. I had upside. I had a lot of equity in those deals. So everything I thought I was going to make went away. But I wasn't actually in there like worried about losing my house and you know losing all my money. So when I started my company in 2011, I, I didn't know this. I just knew I had to get out of what I was doing. I was told that most people make an entrepreneurial leap because they're either on fire, excited about something, or they're drowning where they are. And I was both. I, I, I was really passionate about this idea and I was miserable where I was. So I started a company not really knowing what the market was. It was, it was kind of unsure still. There was, it wasn't clear that like things were going to go well. And they ended up going really well. So from 2011 to today, the market's been outstanding. And I am really clear that um, <laughs> a lot of things look really good in a great market. So I, I'm, I'm enthused. I love what we do. I believe we're doing some really good stuff. The market's been great. And I'm not um, delusional about that. So these projects have all worked and gone really, really well. They've been really hard along the way. So although none of them have like, quote, failed, we've had a lot of problems, a lot of you know, construction overruns, fights with contracts, lawsuits, investor issues. I mean, it has not been all smooth sailing. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad you asked, but we've not had any like, thank God, you know, real, we're in trouble on this one kind of projects. 
Yeah. Yeah. Do you have like a lot of like construction people and like all these different like developers and such like on your payroll, or do you like usually like contract them out? Yeah. Why do you ask? I'll I'll answer, but I'm just curious. Just curious. Yeah. So I decided not to bring in construction when I started the company because I didn't want that level of payroll. And what I experienced in my last company, because we did our own construction, was there was a lot of ups and downs in the, um, in the uh, construction side of things. So you know, you'd have a big group of guys working on a project and your next project wouldn't happen as fast as you want. And so now you're carrying all that payroll in between. Or two things happened at the same time, you had higher up and you weren't sure if you'd keep those guys busy. So you started doing more and more projects just to make sure you could keep your guys busy. And I, and I didn't want to do that. That said, so we, so we do everything in-house except for construction. We've got property management, development, um, leasing, marketing. We outsource technology, but pretty much everything, human resources, all in-house. Construction, we use third-party general contractors. And despite kind of all the um, reasons why we didn't want to be in that business, there's probably equal amount of reasons as to why using third-party GCs is just as hard. That's probably been the hardest part of our business, but I still don't want to be in it myself. Yeah. Yeah. I might have a slight preference towards residential because I think the business is better. It's like economically a better business. But I really am not doing much that isn't mixed use today. I really like the combination of uses. And as you kind of see gravity coming to life, and I sit in that coffee shop during the day, I love that there are people in the business world coming in and out of there all day long. And that just as they're getting ready to go home, there's people coming home to go to the brewery. Um, to me, that really feels kind of like um, the best of both worlds that we're, we're building communities. You know, we're really, we're not building assets. Re- building one or the other just feels like you've got an asset. It's a project. I love the idea of building communities where people are engaging and connecting and collaborating and you know having these kind of spontaneous collisions. Uh, so for that reason, I don't have like a, a preference. But the residential side, straight economically and, and apartments specifically, I think is the is the best class of real estate. No question in the last decade, it's far outperformed everything else. I, I, and I say that like I smile because I was once introducing a real estate developer when I was young, introducing a real estate developer at a speech. I got chosen as like the sponsor to um, introduce this guy. And he stands up and he says, um, Brett's in the worst business you can possibly be in, the apartment business. <laughs> and I was like so dejected by it because I kind of looked up to the guy. And uh, the truth is, is that... Um, he just was really bad at the apartment business. Um, but it's, it's, I think it's the best asset <laughs> class. Um, and I'm happy to expand on that. But if I, had to, if I had to pick economically, I'd say apartments. Yeah. So all these projects that you've worked on and have finished, is that you and your company 
thinking all that into existence from the ground up, or is that someone else coming in with an idea and saying, going to you as the developer to basically... Yeah, no, that's really our vision. Uh, and that's, that's the part I think that I still... It's an interesting thing, as, as we've grown, when I first started the Gramercy, I had a company of one person. Um, then I hired a second person and a third person, and then we hired some people to manage the property on-site, leasing, maintenance. But, but really, from a development standpoint, I was the only person there for a while. And that kind of like thinking it up, the, the vision, the idea, the, um, that piece of it is still the piece that I... Uh, and I found I can still add value to the company. There's a lot there that I, I don't like to do and that I'm not that good at. I used to do it because I had to, but there's people at the company that know how to get things approved, know how to get things financed, know how to get things bid out, know how to get them constructed way better than I want to or ever will now. And so that kind of like upfront piece is is kind of my gift and the piece that I focus most of my time on for us to kind of get the maximized return to our investors um, and start to put some, uh, pull some chips off the table to, to fuel the business go forward. We try not to get kind of pigeonholed into a specific demographic in the way that most people look at it. So millennials, empty nesters, young professionals. We try not to do that because mostly what we're trying to create is an environment for people that are interested in the experience that we're providing. And we don't think that's specific to an age. Uh, We will see empty nesters and young professionals in the 6 a.m. yoga class for different reasons, right? Young professionals have to get to work. The empty nesters have been up for hours right? They both like yoga. So if you like yoga, come here and and live. Uh, That's kind of how we prefer to look at demographic is it's more of a mindset and an interest and a passion for a certain kind of life and certain kinds of opportunities than it is how old you are. That said, you know, we have a lot of young professionals. You know, we're building a lot of stuff downtown. A lot of them are smaller studios, one bedrooms, and um, most of our demographic ends up being younger people. Yeah. Um, so a lot of <clears throat> the buildings you show us are like highly amenitized and younger people. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're not super cheap units. Mm-hmm. That, is there anything you guys are doing as a company to try and tackle like more affordable housing? Yeah, that's a good question. And the answer is not directly. And, and I'm really clear about this. Uh, I. I know nothing about affordable housing. I have no experience in it. I'm passionate about having affordable options, but I'm not passionate about um, that as a business. And, and I don't really understand the business, and I'm not even sure that anyone understands the business. That's why it's such a problem. So we're not directly in that business, and I don't really want to be. What we are doing is trying to approach it a few different ways. So in the second phase of Gravity, we brought an affordable housing developer who knows affordable housing inside and out to an adjacent site that the city owned. And we 
brokered the deal without any uh, expense, and we're giving them free parking in our project because that we can do. So that way, it's in the neighborhood. It's a part of, and, and this is a site, the city owned that probably could have been developed for something at a much, you know, higher uh, return use. And and so we get it there. We give them what we can, and we'll keep trying to be helpful in that kind of way. Um, the other thing that we are doing is this co-live product. I think that it's going to provide a different kind of affordability. If you want a two-bedroom, two-bathroom apartment at an affordable price range, we can't provide that. But we can get you a fully amenitized building with all of those experiences and um, all the high-end finishes, first-class apartment with parking and a great location for $500 if you want to rent by the bed and be in a... um, you know, a unit with other people that are also of quality that, you know, are interesting and want to be sharing space. And um, hopefully, you know, that's a a different approach to affordability. So, yeah, I think that, you know, and the reason I kind of take you on the first part of the journey and, you know, talk to you about kind of the art room and the discovering the creatives and the misfits um, is because that really made an impression on me at an impactful time in my life. And the projects were more reflective early on of the other part of my programming. So they were very clean. They looked good. They, were, they, they worked financially. Um, there was a lot of success in kind of childhood programming wrapped up in my work to begin with. Gravity was more tapping into that art room. When I, when I discovered Franklinton and I discovered the people that were first movers in Franklinton, well, we're the first mover probably or one of them on a big scale project. But there were people there, and this is kind of how I judge a neighborhood. If there's a coffee shop, if there's a brewery, in this case, there's artist lofts, and there's an event, there was a festival called Independence Day that... I first um, discovered in Franklinton and it just blew my mind because it was like skate ramps and, you know, graffiti and, you know, rock bands and like, like just really cool. And I, I hadn't seen anything like that in Columbus, like in my life. And it was like a bunch of guys that just like threw it together. And that spoke to me. That, that made me see that I thought Franklinton was like that art room that I walked into in high school, that there was like a really, there was a real energy there and a, and a blank slate for us to come in and paint all over it in the way that we felt like, you know, maybe it wanted to be painted. So, so you know, I, I saw something, and again, like not, not to sound, you know, egotistical or something, but like, I have a little bit of a gift where I can see stuff. I can I could see what's happening there now, five years ago, and so then I had the the you know fortunate experience. And again, I believe it was all part of it. It, it. My whole life is part of this, of having all of that that banking and real estate development experience to know good site, right? That that that'll work. 
I can build fundamental real estate on a four acre site on Broad Street, half a mile from downtown, tons of drive by traffic. The numbers work. The city's really motivated so we can get some incentive dollars to do some super cool stuff design wise. Like that, all of that experience, all that banking, all that production housing, all that programming helped me be able to then take the true passion, that true part of me that gets me really energized, the architecture, the psychology, the stuff that I really love, and pull that together. And that's what gravity is. And, and Franklinton, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's going now. Now the issue is, you know, can we keep it um, from turning into another arena district or something that we don't really need? Is there anything that you'll try to do in like in up and coming for developments in up and coming areas to maintain the fabric of the local community? It depends on on the community. So, you know, if we're building in New Albany, we're building red brick buildings. If we're building in the short north, we have to kind of conform to historical architectural standards. I don't really like to do that, actually. Um, in fact, that project that I showed you in the short north, we spent a year in zoning and walked away from it. We're coming back now with an entirely new plan because I don't really like to conform at all and not to something that doesn't feel uh, like it's our truest expression of ourself. So my goal isn't really to like honor somebody else's thing. It's um, if we connect to it, if we feel like it's something that, that we have in common, then yeah, great. Let's, let's be additive. Let's collaborate. And that's really how we feel in Franklinton. You know, and, and that's debatable. Some people might think we're gentrifying and these buildings are too fancy or something. I don't know. You can't really, I don't really worry about it much. But I think, I think what I'm doing is really trying to make sure that the energy that I thought was there, that that music festival, that the other artists that were there before us are honored in what we're doing by expanding that energy as opposed to making it something else. So of the 45,000 square feet of art that are in the first phase, 70% of it was done by local artists. You know, we've got Pelotonia as a, as a tenant. You know, they're a huge part of the community. Roosevelt Coffee Shop is a nonprofit coffee shop. Um, you know, we're trying to do our best to make sure we honor and collaborate with the people that were there long before us. Yeah. For your first couple of projects, was there a learning curve for consumers combining residential and commercial uh, with the entire community lifestyle where people kind of jump out and see it? Like, we're excited about kind of living in somewhere they can also socialize. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. You know, what we say is, again, we have fundamentally strong real estate. So you've got a 750 square foot, one bedroom apartment. It's got a great floor plan. Um, high quality finishes, you know, well constructed. And if you want to uh, come home from work and go inside and sit down and go to sleep and not talk to anybody, you can do that. You don't have to socialize. It's just there for you if you want it. So 
And we've tried to be really clear about that. And sometimes I'm not sure how good of a job we do with it. And the truth is, is that most people do that. Most people really aren't um, taking full advantage of all the events and all the clubs and all the socialization. Most people look at it as a place they want to live, meets their price points, close to work, whatever it is. They like us versus them. They got a better deal. You know, a lot of people are still making decisions that way. And that's okay. We, we had to be comfortable that those that actually, um, that's part of it, you know, that, that we want people to have a good experience <clears throat> where they live. And that might just mean that they get a good night's sleep or that it's close to work. Um, and that's okay. Uh, but those that then go to the next level and tap into something is where we really start to feel like we're making an impact. I probably would have missed out on a whole bunch of stuff at home. You know, I probably, you know, who knows, health, you know, family, other things, who knows. But that said, we passed on a lot of deals because we were trying to be a little bit more conservative about the market. And I still think, like statistically speaking, we're really late in the cycle. Yet, like, there's no evidence that shows that that's actually the case for real estate. Um, And you never really see it coming and you never know exactly what it's going to be. And it's never what you think it is. So who knows? I was at a a seminar at Harvard a few weeks ago and a guy reminded the group that Australia has had a 28-year run. And so who knows? You know, There's part of me that would love it if that was the case, but I'm not counting on it. So we've got some pretty big bets that we're taking right now. And we're going to kind of finish those and see where the market is, but assume that it's, it's going to go through some slowdowns. I don't think we're going off a cliff again, but um, I think it'll slow down. I've never been in a position to have money in a downturn. I, in the last downturn, was fighting all the fights. You know, I went to work for, I don't know, three, four years where it was just to fight every day, just to keep a project or to you know, keep afloat. And I really don't want to do that again. So um, we're selling a bunch of assets now with the thought that we'll have cash and um, maybe buy them back. You know, I, I don't want anybody to fail, but whether it be those or other assets, I think there will be opportunities if you've got the freedom to, to act. And you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of mixed feelings about that. You know, some people say, you know, as you look at the stock market, invest the day you have money and keep investing because if you look over the period of time, you know, you're going to end up. So don't try to time the market is like the conventional wisdom. And and I don't know if that's necessarily true for real estate, but you could take that approach. And I know people that do. I have plenty of friends that say I'm going to keep building. I've made so much money. We've had so many successes that if the last few fail, oh well, you know, but I don't want to miss out on what might be a 28 year run. So they keep going. I, I, kind of, I kind of have a bit of a different approach now, which is like I have enough right now. Like I have way more than I ever thought I would. So, like, I don't care if I miss out on a little bit. I don't want to be going to work every day you know, fighting fights. So we're going to get liquid and see what happens. Yeah. You had mentioned, sorry, 
um, that you were moving into the Green Bay area to do a project. Mm-hmm. What challenges do you face there? That what's different? Yeah, yeah, it's a unique project. Um, we were hired as the developer, um, not as the developer owner. We responded to an RFP, and this is one where I've kind of gone a little bit outside of my comfort zone and trusted my team. I, I've never done that before as like a hired gun to develop stuff for somebody else for a fee. Um, and so I've kind of just like surrendered and I'm kind of letting go and seeing what happens. And, and it's been kind of fun. They're a great organization. You know, you fly into Green Bay, which is the worst airport in the world. Um, and then you sit in the Lombardi conference room and like, you know, there's like Mr. Lombardi's desk and it's kind of cool and Lambo's in the back and you get to go to games and, you know, we're building apartments right next to the Lambo field and, you know, all these players and whatever else went to town. It's kind of fun, but it's kind of a pain in the ass too, because, you know, we're doing all the same work and we don't take the risk, but there's not much of a reward. And it comes and at times it's kind of a burden and kind of a distraction because I want people like working on the stuff that we own. And so it's, it's been kind of a learning experience, but I'm happy we did it and we'll see what comes of it. It's not something I think we're going to repeat the fee development business. The Easton project's the same way. We're a fee developer there. So we're trying a couple ways. And you know what my team says, which I think they're right, is that it's nice to have some revenue coming in that isn't all um, our own dollars at risk. Um, So there's some real benefits to it too. You know, we try to, first of all, not use a lot of our own capital. So we give up ownership and deals and bring in outside capital. We try not to put too much leverage, um, too much debt on deals so that if there are hiccups, you know, we can, the equity gets kind of absorbed first and we're not having the bank taking the asset back. Um, We try to really be careful about how many deals we're doing uh, at one time and really be location and kind of fundamental underwriting specific and, and really look at the underwriting and really make sure that we feel like we're not kidding ourselves and run downside scenarios. My, my, very kind of stupid, simple mentality when I bought the first townhouse was, if it goes really bad, if I'm way wrong, can I break even? And if it goes really well, can I make a lot of money? And I still kind of look at deals that way. We'll like stress them and look at like where the break even is. And now I'm willing to lose a little bit of money, um, but not a lot. And so I, I look for deals that really kind of fall into that category. We try not to do deals that are like just okay, knowing that going in. And a lot of people do, and that's not a judgment, but they, they make a lot of fees and okay is good enough. And if they do volume, a lot of okay turns out to be pretty good. But we've kind of looked for what we think are a little bit more protected on the downside and then big upsides. Mm-hmm. Somebody once told me that the definition of balance is not being too far over in one area for too long. So it's not that everything gets kind of like chopped up perfectly, that you have X amount of time here, there, and the other place. It's that you just can't stay over 
in one place for too long. So you can't be all in on your work for too long without your family paying a price or yourself paying the price. So um, when you're starting a business, you kind of need to really spend a lot of hours there. Um, We just sold a property and um, I kind of joked with the kids like, as I got the check, which was kind of a nice one. Um, like, I hope you understand I have been home for dinner a lot in the last few years, but here's why. Um, and and I, I joke about that, you know, because I, I can, because I know I've been a really present father. And there were times where I was not home for dinner because I was building this thing. And you just have to kind of internally really ask yourself, like, you know, where do I need to be? And, and, then, and then act in alignment. And it's, it's harder, I think it's, it's easier said than done. Uh, and what happened for me is I actually um, developed some, or I, I, I was um, given some tools that were time management tools. And I learned some things that really allowed me to get balance in my life. So I have my like days broken down where I do certain things on certain days. And I have, like, this is a rare exception. I usually take my school, my kids to school every morning, drop them off at 8.30. I'm home for dinner every night at six o'clock when I'm in town. You know, on Fridays, I don't work um, for the company. I do kind of self-care and other personal meet friends, that kind of stuff. You know, I'm I'm mostly, you know, working uh, on the business two days a week. Um, The other two days, I'm doing kind of, you know, the more impactful stuff that I'm starting to pay more attention to coaching and supporting other entrepreneurs and investing. And I, you know, have a really, you know, kind of more overall balanced life today than I did, you know, when I started it eight, nine years ago. And that's taken a lot of intentionality and a lot of thought and a lot of fighting the patterns and the societal demands. I mean, I could be out every night. I could be at an event. I could there's, you know, I've had to learn to say no to people that I don't want to say no to all the time. Good, nice, kind people want to have coffee and lunch. I can't do it all the time. You, you just can't. And also be there for your kids, be there for yourself, be there for your company, do anything else. You can't do it all. And you just have to get really comfortable with that and really good at just honoring yourself and, and those that matter. But it's a journey. <laughs> all right, everybody. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.